You're listening to Conversations, the official podcast of the George C. Marshall European Center for Security Studies, recorded at the center in Garmisch, Germany. The NATO alliance has been in the headlines lately, but instead of news reports about military exercises or international cooperation, there's been an increase in news reports about whether or not the alliance is needed anymore. In this Marshall Center Conversations podcast, we interview somebody who isn't reluctant to talk about the NATO alliance, its value, or what the future might hold for the alliance. That person is Dr. Jamie Shea, NATO's Deputy Assistant Secretary General for Emerging Security Challenges. Now, Dr. Shea has a long, distinguished career at NATO. If you can think back to 1999 when NATO launched combat operations in Kosovo during Operation Allied Force, it was Shea who was the NATO spokesperson. He was the person international audiences listened to for daily updates on the campaign to end the humanitarian crisis there. Since then, he has served in many important jobs within the alliance. Shea was visiting the Marshall Center to speak to a group of parliamentarians from Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania who attended a tailored seminar examining regional security challenges in the Baltics region. Now, Shea was interviewed by Marshall Center Dean Andrew Mikta. Here's the interview between Shea and our Dean. My first question is quite simple. Of the many, many challenges that you've seen, changes in leadership in Europe, changes in the United States, what keeps you awake at night? Well, first of all, Andrew, let me f- start by saying that it's good to see you again, see you. and it's great to be back at the Marshall Center, and it's good to see that you're still doing all of this very useful, worthwhile work uh, in uh, educating decision makers both in allied countries and our partner countries into modern strategic issues which is of course what we're going to be talking about today. What keeps me uh, uh, awake at night? Well the first thing I think that nothing should keep any uh, decision maker awake at night because uh, daytime is so stressful that believe me uh, one needs one's uh, sleep. Uh, Good decisions are not usefully made on the basis of insomnia. But, But that said I think that what is true today is never before have so many different challenges been coming at us from so many different directions at once. Most of the time that I've been at NATO over the last 30 odd years, it's been one particular issue in one particular region at one time. We, you mentioned the Balkans, Kosovo. Right. When that was done, it was just time to go to Afghanistan. When Afghanistan was winding down, at least in terms of NATO's uh, ISAF mission there, it was time to go to Libya and so on. So we've had the luxury of putting all of our eggs in one basket being able to focus on one particular threat um, with the luxury, if you like, of being able to prepare decisions over a long period of time, make sure we've got the right decisions, the right capabilities in place. That's gone. Uh, Now we're dealing with a world of unpredictability. Uh, if If, for example, at the beginning of 2016, Uh, This time last year, we'd been sitting here uh, and I told you, Andrew, I can predict that the UK is going to withdraw from the uh, European Union. Uh, Andrew, uh, Donald Trump, uh, a real estate developer in New York uh, and a TV reality host, is going to be elected president of the United uh, uh, States, for example. Even at Leicester City, uh, uh, 5,000 to 1 odds on favourite, we're going to win the Premiership uh, game in the uh, league in the UK. Uh, Joking aside, uh, you would not have believed any of those things rationally, and yet they happened. And now as we face 2017, who knows what's going to be the outcome of the elections in in France or Germany or or, or the Netherlands, where we're going to be. Who would have thought just a a couple of months ago that the United States and Russia could be on the verge of a a, a rapprochement after all of the 
uh, hostility in that relationship since Russia annexed Crimea. So I think the, the first thing is, is this notion of, of unpredictability and uncertainty. On what strategic basis can one base decisions these days with any degree of assurance that they're going to play out into the uh, future? Secondly, uh, we face an array of issues both from the east and the south. Uh, and they're not the same as they used to be. For example, the last time we faced the Soviet Union, we didn't have to worry about hybrid warfare or propaganda campaigns or media manipulation. You know, the Soviet Union was not inside our societies able to make trouble to the extent that Russia is today. It was just a purely military threat, and we could uh, deal with that. Last time that I dealt with the South, it was all fairly stolid regimes, uh, like Mubarak in Egypt or Ben Ali in, in Tunisia had been there for generations. Uh, frozen societies, but stable. Now the CIA last year counted 1,400 jihadist groups across North Africa uh, 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 alone. Uh, and so defining priorities. You know, if you've got limited resources, where should you best invest? So them? how do you prepare that, that's, the alliance? That, that's the thing that's really difficult. So how do you prepare the alliance for all these challenges? Well, I think the first thing is we've got to have much better situational awareness. I mean, too often we've been caught by surprise. Think of the Arab Spring. Uh, the famous British historian of the, Re of the French Revolution, Thomas Carlyle, uh, once said about the French Revolution that nobody predicted it, but afterwards everybody saw that it was inevitable. We can't be in that situation today. Uh, we've got to be much better uh, at strategic anticipation, at trying to sort of guess what, what's going to be coming our way and preparing for it uh, in, in advance. Secondly, we are now in a situation where uh, we're going to face more crises and more frequent crises, and therefore NATO has got to be able to raise its game in the sense of being able to make the transition from peace to war uh, through a crisis period, uh, if necessary, much more quickly. And that means more exercises for NATO ambassadors, for NATO decision makers, uh, scenario-driven exercises, tabletop exercises. It's not just the military that have to train as they fight. The diplomats have to learn also uh, to train as they uh, uh, fight uh, as well. Number three, you need a much broader spectrum of, of, of capabilities uh, because we need now to fight in cyberspace. We didn't have to do that before. We need to have to fight in the information, propaganda space. Again, something that we didn't uh, necessarily uh, have to uh, do before uh, uh, either. We need to look at how, for example, terrorist organizations could exploit new technologies like artificial intelligence or bioengineering, uh, uh, just like they're already acquiring uh, ballistic and chemical weapons. So we need to deal with a world where... Look at cyberspace. The individual or the small group now has access to knowledge, to our vulnerabilities, to power, to capabilities that 100 years ago only a massive state with lots and lots of resources uh, would be uh, able to have. I call this the democratization of insecurity. In other words, nowadays anybody could destabilize anything. Like cyber can allow anybody to attack anything from anywhere at any time of the day with a very, very tiny investment of resources. So in light of, of what you've outlined here, the complexity of the tasks and the threats, wouldn't you, in fact, be telling our decision makers that NATO is more relevant today than arguably at any point since the end of the Cold War, that we are facing these new tasks? Let me ask you flat out, what would you advise or say to uh, President Trump as he uh, enters into office about NATO's value going forward? Well, normally, Andrew, you, you wouldn't sort of marry uh, somebody on the basis of her portrait or her reputation, right? Uh, you'd get to know her first before you decide whether you want to be married or not. So the first thing I'd hope is that President Trump, because 
today he's inaugurated, so he's no longer president-elect, would, would first of all come over and find out a little bit about NATO first. For example, he, he says that NATO needs to do more on terrorism. We're not doing anything on terrorism. Well, but surely he realizes that uh, not only have thousands of Americans died in Afghanistan fighting al-Qaeda or the Taliban, but thousands of Europeans as, as well. Uh, and that the Allies have been with the United States in Iraq, uh, the We've been together uh, now today doing defense capacity building across the Middle East and so on. So first of all, you know, look at what's really happening. Sometimes we may not call it counterterrorism. We may give, another, give it another fancy name like defense capacity building or projecting stability. But we are doing a lot. Uh, you're, one of your famous uh, Supreme Court judges, Oliver Wendell Holmes, said everybody's entitled to his own opinion, but everybody's not entitled to his own facts. So let's get the, the facts on the table. But having said that, I also acknowledge from the NATO side, we've got to do a better job of explaining ourselves uh, in, in the United States. That's the first thing. Secondly, uh, the, the Europe also helps the United States. This is not a one-way street. Uh, when the United States wants to do something in the world, where do the allies come from? I mean, do, do the Russians uh, put troops into American operations? Do the Chinese put troops into American operations? Do they put their soldiers on the line? Only the Europeans do this. Thirdly, look at all the things that the Europeans are doing for stability, which the United States doesn't have to do. The French are in Mali. Great. So the Americans don't have to be, 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 be in Mali. The, the Europeans are subsidizing UN peacekeeping much more than the United States. We could carry on in this vein. So, you know, it's very easy to simplify in this complex world. But, but let's get the facts on the table first. And uh, I think ultimately the president has to ask if uh, alliances of convenience... Uh, uh, which uh, fold very quickly uh, have the same value as the kind of permanent structured relations based on common values which the uh, NATO alliance offers the United States. You used the metaphor of dating or courtship or getting to know one another when you spoke of President Trump and NATO. What would be the best format for that? A summit? Private meetings, uh, expert meetings, what would you recommend? Well, I, I, I am a great believer that before we have a big public event like a summit, although that will come because uh, I imagine that President Trump will come over to uh, uh, Europe, Brussels, uh, to, to meet uh, the Allies uh, sooner or later, just like the President, for example, engages with the European Union uh, as, as well as NATO, as well as individual allies. But my sense, given what we've heard on the campaign trail, given that we've got a new administration with lots of new faces, is coming in, some of whom are more familiar with NATO than others, that a period of quiet diplomacy whereby we have some meetings uh, 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 with the key officials, with the president, uh, to talk about things, to get a better sense of where President Trump would like NATO to go. But also, as I said, to explain to the president, uh, president, you may, Mr. President, you may not realize this, but NATO's already doing this. Uh, uh, and let's therefore look at the things that should be done rather than the things that uh, are being done already. And, and so that when a summit does happen, it is what a NATO summit should be, what the Warsaw summit was last July, which is a display of unity and, and, and resolve. I mean, Benjamin Franklin was fond of saying that we either hang together or we hang separately. And in this world where the, pop, the economic resources, the populations of the United States and Europe vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the world, our comparative power instruments vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the world are, are declining uh, all the time, uh, our mastery of technology monopoly of technology is not what it used to be. We really have to ask ourselves if this is the time to start sort of trying to go, go, in, go in alone. It, to my mind, this is definitely the time for coming closer together. Jamie, I have to ask you this. This is not the first time you've been at the Marshall Center. 
when you look at us, we're a German-American partnership. We're committed to being here in the region, working with allies and partners. How do you see our role in this next cycle of NATO's uh, engagement? What should our role be, in your view? Well, I, I think the first thing based on what I saw today, is bringing in the decision makers, getting them to sort of leave the, the comfort zone of their uh, capitals and the day-to-day -day political grind, and coming down here, particularly in this glorious setting of the Alps, where you can start taking a long-term, alpine long-term strategic view of things, uh, and getting a serious background in, in the various issues. Uh, but these people have to vote the defence budgets at the end of the day. They have to make the decisions. They're the people who have the immediate contact with their public opinion. They're the people who talk to the media. Uh, and basically, if our elites in this age of populism, uh, of sort of anger, angry, direct democracy, if our elites uh, don't understand what we're doing, then we're going to be in trouble. So I think the first thing is the training of elites. Now, I know that in the past, the Marshall Center uh, concentrated very much on our partners. Many Correct. great contacts were made back in the 1990s when the Marshall Center started uh, with the emerging military commanders and political elites in partner countries, building that network, which has been so useful to us, for example, in Afghanistan or dealing with the Middle East. But uh, our home front, uh, to my mind, is the major strategic theatre of today. It's the cohesion of our own societies, the perception that Russia has that we're weak and can be manipulated, that we can be divided uh, among ourselves. The, the fact that our publics now don't trust governments or institutions or the media or international organizations the way that they used to. So to my mind, I would hope that the Marshall Center, while not giving up the partnership role, would increasingly see that NATO's sort of, if you like, battle line today is, is behind the lines as much as, if not more, as it is in front of us uh, and would therefore really see not just in terms of the German-American dialogue which is so fundamental uh, but in Maine what we can do to tie our own uh, elites uh, closer behind what uh, NATO is, 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 is doing uh, and can look at also uh, a larger number of societal vulnerabilities. We've spoken about cyber today. We've spoken about propaganda, for instance, uh, uh, critical infrastructure protection, all of these kind of things. Uh, what we can do to make those more resilient and not just focus on how efficient what our NATO tanks are against hypothetical adversary tanks. Because, uh, as we were saying a moment ago over lunch, my conviction is that what counts in winning today is the uh, integrity of your operational environment behind the lines, and it's that which the adversary is trying to undermine without going to war all the time, like we have everyday cyber attacks, everyday propaganda campaigns. Uh, and uh, to focus more on that resilience piece so that we uh, ultimately are, are less of a target simply because we are less vulnerable. So if I'm hearing you correctly, and we are, we're coming towards the end of our discussion here, combining the transnational and regional missions is just as vital today, if not more, uh, for the Marshall Center and for the NATO alliance in terms of getting our own community in order, resilient and strong, if, I, if I'm understanding what your principal points here are. Yes, and the fact that this is an organization which has been very much co-sponsored by Germany and the United States, but which represents an important American strategic footprint in Europe at the time when the transatlantic relationship sometimes, to many, doesn't seem as solid as it was, has this enormous symbolic uh, value uh, along with all of your 30-odd years now of, uh, of experience of, of doing course, this kind yeah. of thing. So uh, to give a short answer, if not you, who else? Well, I couldn't agree more. Thank you so much for this vote of confidence.
Our time has come to an end. Uh, Dr. Shea, thank you once again for sitting down with us and for answering a few questions. Uh, We're delighted to have you here. I hope you'll be back again. Thank you very much. Thank you, Andrew. All right. That was an interview with NATO Deputy Assistant Secretary General for Emerging Security Challenges, Dr. Jamie Shea, and Marshall Center Dean Andrew Mikda. It was recorded at the Marshall Center on January 20th, 2017. Thank you for listening to Conversations, the official podcast of the George C. Marshall European Center for Security Studies. The opinions and views expressed here are not necessarily those of the Marshall Center, the Department of Defense, the German Ministry of Defense, or any other entity affiliated with the Marshall Center. More from the Marshall Center is available on Twitter, Facebook, and other social media channels, and at www.marshallcenter.org. Thanks for listening.